0: To the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at at americanbar.org.
1: We hope you enjoy your selection.
2: to this week's episode of The New Frontier, a podcast series focused on data security, privacy and technology presented by the American Bar Association in conjunction with the Klein School of Law at Drexel University. I am your host, Jordan Fisher, and I'm very excited to welcome my guest today, Jordan Strauss, Managing Director of Kroll. Jordan, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Jordan. It's nice to be here.
2: Thanks so much for joining us. It's going to be fun the Jordan and Jordan show today. <laughs> um, but if you could introduce yourself, what you're currently working on at Kroll, that would be great.
1: Sure. So uh, I, I'm Jordan Strauss. I'm a managing director at Kroll, and I'm on our internal think tank as well. So I'm a fellow at the Kroll Institute. Um, you know, right now at Kroll, um, my big focus is on working with organizations that are going through what we would sort of think of as deep problems or um you know, existential risks or hoping to prevent those risks from from coming to be. And um, I also am focused on some institutional transformation efforts uh, internally.
2: I love that word risk. I think we're gonna hear that a lot today when we're talking about privacy, security and what's going on in this space. Um, But you've had a very diverse career and I find that so many individuals, students and practitioners always want to hear about what is your journey to how you got to where you currently are?
1: So I clerked after law school. Uh, and when I was working with the judge and trying to figure out what I was going to do next, uh, the judge sort of sat me down and said, you know, I think it's really important that you apply to the justice department, because I think in his words, he said, uh, I'm old and I've never sent anyone to DOJ before. So I, uh, I did. And, um, applied to the attorney general's honors program and got offers from a couple of different offices at doj moved to dc uh, and joined the office that does false claims act and anti-kickback act work and i joined the department right after hurricane katrina hit uh which i think about three months after hurricane katrina hit and like a lot of americans i was really upset with the federal response there and i asked to be assigned to disaster cases and Katrina cases immediately. And a really wonderful boss um, named Michael Hertz, um, legendary Justice Department lawyer, who uh, indulged me in that and allowed me to get in way over my head as a young lawyer. Um, uh, So I did a lot of these disaster cases and a lot of um, cases involving sensitive uh, government customers as well. And That sort of led to some task force work on disasters. I was the civil division representative to what was then called the Hurricane Katrina Fraud Task Force and what's now the National Disaster um, Fraud Task Force. And uh, that led to some writing work. The department decided it wanted a blue book. Those are sort of DOJ Bibles on crisis response. I ended up writing the civil issues chapter and some speaking work. And then President Obama was elected and his transition team determined that national security crisis and emergency operations should be consolidated in a new office uh, inside the department's national security division um i applied for that job sort of hoping that they would create like a council or deputy position because i was probably way too young um and just you know sometimes washington just happens and i ended up becoming the first director of preparedness and response which was a role for the national security division which was a role exclusively focused on thinking about national security crises and legal and policy and operational issues associated with them. Um, I loved that job. All I did was sit in this big, beautiful office in the Justice Department and think about the end of the world and think about the kinds of legal issues that could happen in really, really bad situations. And the thesis behind the job was legal thinking And legal analysis is a transaction cost. And anybody who's ever bought or sold a business or gotten married or gotten divorced knows that, you know, that there's a time and a, you know, for civilians, a a financial cost to achieving legal advice. And when you're in the middle of a crisis, right, that transaction costs can be really deadly. I mean, you don't want people to act extra legally. You don't want people to not act to the fullest extent of their authorities. You don't want people sitting around thinking like, well, gosh, what are the lawyers gonna say? So a lot of the job was trying to tee up these legal issues that could come up in, in disasters and to try to reduce as much as possible the legal transactional cost associated with incident response. So there was a lot of work on infrastructure issues, certainly a lot of work on cyber. Um, it, was, it was very hot even, even then. Um, some operational legal support, a lot of policy work. And I, I handled a couple of accounts with the White House, um, which meant that I spent a lot of time at EEOB and occasionally in the White House Situation Room. I um I got poached by the National Security Council staff and went over there for a bit, worked on some sensitive issues, uh, some internal security issues and some other some other items. And um I think it was at that point that I Realized I was probably getting ready to leave government. I just had been, I think, nine or ten years, and I really wanted a little bit of a change. You know, my hobby in DC was teaching law school at American University, and the job that I had was fairly intense and was amazing and awesome and wonderful. But uh, I'd always kind of wanted a family. So Miss um, Yates's office; uh, she was then the acting deputy attorney general, asked me if I wanted to go to Afghanistan to help help lead our office there uh, i did because it was you know at the time known as this one of the hardest jobs in the department um and i felt like i'd had this really blessed career and that i needed to do something hard in order to give myself permission to leave I, it was also geographically the farthest i could get away from dc without kind of heading back to dc so went over there for a year worked on counter-corruption issues uh trained um our our host country uh national security and investigations professionals in um in conducting investigations Just a wonderful year working with with the multinational community and you know with with the armed armed services and others um and then the department really graciously put me in in philadelphia which is my home and stationed me there as a special assistant united states attorney and then uh i um started looking around a bit and found in kroll an organization where i could you know, have the kind of the kind of work that I wanted to do as as a platform because Kroll's big and international and still be able to at least spend weekends in Philadelphia. So I, I moved over to Kroll about five years ago, and I've been teaching national security law at Drexel on the side ever since. And I think that was a little bit of a long answer to your question, Jordan. I'm sorry about that.
2: No, that was fascinating. And I was thinking, gosh, each of those opportunities that you've had in your past would alone be really interesting to dive into. So there might be future opportunities for us to chat on this. Um, But I really think, you know, it's, it's interesting that you have come about this from really that triaging national disaster sort of perspective. And you've really been at the thick of it during what I think have been some pivotal years slash decades around our thought process around technology, the risks associated with it, et cetera. So maybe just sort of setting the scene from your perspective with this very colored past in this space that you've had, you know, from what you see on a day-to-day basis, both in the past and now, what do you see as the biggest threats to business in the current technological environment? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think if you'd asked me this maybe six or seven years ago, I would have said the increasing promulgation of complexity and attack surface. So just the number and complexity of interdependent systems that organizations rely on. So, you know, be they they SCADA, you know, infrastructure control systems or um, legacy mainframe operations, right? So I would have said complexity is the most significant thing. Now, I'd say it is probably an absence of regulatory clarity when conducting response and response operations. Um, and with the increase in anonymization or quasi anonymization tools in, uh, especially in crypto, mm-hmm. uh, I think that, you know, navigating problems in a way that complies with sanctions requirements is really really significant. We're very lucky that a, a senior colleague of mine is going to join us a little bit later in the podcast. And I think we'll, we'll definitely want to ask him the same question.
2: Yeah, no, it's I can completely understand. I think it's both the lack of regulatory clarity. And then, you know, I'm interested to, to see your thoughts on sort of the global regulatory space, because I think there's a lack of clarity in the U.S. potentially, but then globally. There is and there is not. I'm, I'm curious if you have that same perspective.
1: No, I, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, particularly, particularly in Europe and particularly in certain Asian countries, the ability to move data freely uh, and really just the ability to move data uh, can make just day to day operations very difficult. Um, I mean, if you look at the lineage of a piece of data, the number of pools and eddies and lakes that it goes into from start to finish can just create real technological barriers to compliance with the letters of certain certain kinds of laws. Um, I think that can create operational challenges, which can then create legal risks down the line. And it just appears that things are increasingly splintering, especially when you start to take into account like, you know, newer blocking statutes and things like that.
2: Yeah, I could not agree more. Sometimes I have to think, are we doing the letter of the law or the spirit of the law? <laughs> and which do I feel like arguing in front of a court? <laughs> um, and, and with cybersecurity sort of building off of that, I think there's this unique interplay between national security and business security that is really unique in this space. So how do you see that interplay evolving? How is it? How has it evolved since you're now sitting on the outside, but you certainly were sort of more on that inside perspective? Um, and how can we create opportunities for collaboration to address these sort of changing and evolving threats and vulnerabilities across both the public and the private sectors?
1: Yeah, so it's a great it's a great question. I, I actually think a lot about the uh, the Skipjack and Clipper chip fiasco of the of the late 1990s. Well, I guess fiasco or effort, if depending on on which side of it you were on. and which um, uh, in one of the first attempts to deal with. Um, what's now commonly referred to as the going dark problem, um, mm-hmm. the unavailability of, of information to governments making a lawful demand for it, right? The Clinton administration sought to mandate a particular kind of cryptography uh, and cryptographic technique with consumers. It was based on an algorithm called Skipjack, with the, which uh, Dr. Matt Blaze, uh, I think as a Young Bell Labs engineer, proved was, was not actually secure. So, you know, I think that that started this long chain of real distrust, particularly on, on cryptography and data security between the private sector and the government. And we've seen that. I, I mean, I think that is a model for thinking about what's going on now is a really good one. You know, we saw this in the the San Bernardino issue with, with Apple refusing to build sort of a government operating, what Apple called a government operating system for the FBI to decrypt tools, right? So on the one hand, you've got an almost adversarial relationship between technology companies and governments when it comes to privacy on the one hand uh cryptographic certainty on the one hand with uh, balanced with on the other the need to comply with court orders and to comply with lawful investigative demands which i feel like especially in the technology space people are often skeptical about but i mean there's you know there's a real need like you know there's there's a reason that the constitution allows the government when it follows um you know follows certain procedures to get access to stuff um you know i think that is a debate that's just going to continue for a while but if you look at what like fbi and increasingly dhs uh CISA has done which is to really aggressively build relationships to really aggressively support through a number of methods and through a number of, of, of laws um lawful threat signature sharing information right i think that's that's really great i, I my colleague will probably have some thoughts about this in a moment But I will say that, you know, I think one of the questions when you're conducting an issue that has any kind of criminal dimension to it for a private client, one of the first questions is, do you or don't you want to share this with law enforcement, right? Because there's a risk that you may lose some control over the course of the investigation, right? That it may no longer be able to be possible to investigate yourself. And this is true, whether it's a cyber issue or just, you know, a, a run of the mill theft. Um, I've seen that conversation and the way that that conversation is advised upon right do we want to bring say the FBI in or or DEA or whoever um I've seen it really change over the last 6 years because of the extraordinary efforts that the government has made to build a trust with private sector um you know to communicate that if you're sharing information that could be helpful to understand another series of instance, that doesn't mean there's going to be an investigation of your company. Um, I think that's really important. And I I think that just balancing that trust slash don't trust relationship is is really, really, really significant. And I think one of the most significant developing things uh, moving forward, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing what my colleague has to say about that.
2: Yeah, no, it's really fascinating, and I and I think maybe this is a great time, Jordan, to introduce one of your colleagues who can sort of shed some additional light on these questions.
1: That 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 is great. So we're really lucky um, that uh, my colleague and friend, who's who's also a managing director at Kroll and who lives in our um our cyber group, um, Chris Ballad was able to join us. And Chris uh, was a data privacy and cybersecurity attorney who handled like I, I can't remember if it's five hundred or seven hundred, but some some. Ungodly number of incidents um, before joining us at Kroll, And now he leads one of our larger incident response teams. And when I say incident response in this context, I'm, I'm pretty sure your your audience knows what that means, but that's uh, you know, helping our clients recover from intrusions from everything from potential, you know, APT state actors to um to more mundane business email compromises and, and email fraud. Uh Chris, were you were you able to dial in? Can you hear us? I'm here. Thank you so much, Jordan and Jordan. Good
0: to be with you today.
2: Thanks for joining us, Chris.
0: Absolutely.
2: So, you know, I'll let Jordan actually ask his questions. He's been he's been alluding to sort of some, some tidbits of knowledge you can share with us, Chris.
1: Yeah, so Chris, I, you know, I, I think about threat often from like a policy uh, and, and strategic level. I'm, I'm wondering, what are you what are you seeing in terms of? the most significant evolving threats right now for for organizations?
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, the usually it comes down to a matter of trying to um, figure out what the level of security they need is. So there is no question that the range of groups that are active today in the cybercrime space, in the state actor space, are able to get into a digital environment in some way, shape or form, whether it's a zero day, that's a vulnerability that nobody knows about until it's been exploited by the bad guys enough. Um, And and there's finally a patch for it, but the patch is a week after the vulnerability has been um, out on the, the, uh, the dark web or out and being used in the wild, so to speak, or some other way of getting in, uh, the you know the good old fashioned phishing attack, what have you? The threat actors getting in is not really the question. It's then how does the organization deal with it from there? Where are the redundant layers of security? Is there a sufficient disaster recovery plan? When and if something goes wrong, and these don't sound like new problems because they're not. They are uh, you know they've long been the questions, but they're that perception that you could throw some money at the perimeter, you know, limit the attack surface and be able to keep the threat actors out altogether, really, I think has eroded and gone away. Uh, There were whole sectors that used to say, as long as I've got, you know, good perimeter security. And when we say perimeter, we mean how you get in in the first place, firewalls, VPNs, whatever it may be that's good enough because really honestly, if somebody gets in, I don't have anything that valuable and nobody's really targeting me. Well, it's not a question of being targeted You know, for the longest time. Manufacturing really considered itself resilient to attacks simply by virtue of the fact they didn't have a lot of data uh, that they thought was really vulnerable. Manufacturing is, and for the last two years, really has been the number one industry right up there with professional services being targeted by, especially the ransomware actors. So that's 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 a bit about what businesses are facing on the day to day. Now you add the complexity that the ransomware attacks um, ha- happen to coincide with the fact that, um, the actors are in these, quote, bulletproof countries, places with non-extradition treaties. And as I like to, I once heard um, on a call, actually, that I like the, to repeat uh, a um a member of a certain governmental organization joined a call with a client who was facing one of these attacks. And uh, they asked, well, can we drone strike these individuals? And the response was classic. It was, well, these individuals, I can't reveal the, the, indiv- the investigative information, but I can tell you these individuals live in a place that is very cold and has a very large military. Well, The issue here, tying dovetailing with national security, is yeah, we generally would not dispute that, and obviously now that militaries might be a bit smaller, but due to recent events, but the the willingness to use cyber. Uh, tools is certainly reputed to be out there and is certainly a real threat. So we're all holding our breath to some degree for that moment where it's not ransomware, it's Hermetic Wiper or Cyclops Blink or one of these other, you know, s- essentially militarized wipers that's um, striking at a pain point in American business. So. That's added a whole dimension, a whole new dimension to things, and certainly on the legal side of things, then they have to understand uh, the Office of Foreign Assets Controls (OFAC) clearances and the number of uh, investigative agencies that certainly want to be involved and share information. So it's gotten to be a very complicated time.
1: And and just over the next, uh, I guess, over the next year or so, if you had to give a, a top two or three suspected risks what what do you think they'd be
0: and so i uh, don't want to be boring but good old-fashioned business email compromises uh uh, yet again spiking um and what do i mean by that i mean the phishing attack where you uh, these actors are extremely sophisticated in how they launch the attack they get access using methods like legacy protocols where um you know frankly even a sophisticated business entity may not have this disable that kind of access. a way of circumventing multi-factor or may leave it uh, available because they have certain legacy systems that need that protocol enabled. Um, So in other words, there's a lot of sophistication around the business email compromise that allows threat actors to get in, who then know exactly how to intercept communications and poses one half of a transaction, redirect payment, and the money's gone before anyone can react. Um, that is on the increase. It's been with us forever. I, I think phishing is a topic that everybody has heard plenty on and will continue to. Um, but ransomware is coming back. There was a short period of time early in uh, in March, late in February, where the ransomware actors were thrown into a bit of a, uh, confusion and a little less active. Again, we can speculate on the reasons why, certainly take very educated guesses, but um, they are certainly coming back. The volume is increasing. Uh, their targets do seem to be instead of the fifty million dollar demands more a million or less at the moment, not to say we're not seeing large ones as well. So I think that there'll be a bit of a return to normal on that front as for whatever normal has been for the last five years, which is ever increasing volume of ransomware attacks. The other thing is we're going to continue to see this this sophistication um hopefully around the blue team, the security side that Uh, There will be a zero day. There will be something that they exploit. So what do you do now? How are they going to get in next? What will be the next Caseo or proxy logon event? Um, So there's going to be hopefully some adoption around layered defenses more so than there is now. Uh, There has been a massive change in the cyber insurance industry, uh, tougher underwriting standards. That's prompting a lot of security hardening as well. So the landscape is going to change, no question about it. What I don't see, and I think it's worth noting real quickly, um, is what we were all kind of talking about three years ago as being uh, on the horizon in five years, and that's quantum computing and AI-based security and offense. Well, I, you know, I don't think it's science fiction and it's coming uh, eventually. I, we're nowhere near that yet from what I can see. Again, I think we're still going to be dealing with the way we do things, more cloud intrusions perhaps, but certainly, um, you know, business as usual to some extent.
2: Yeah, Chris, when you were when you were describing it, all I could think of is on the, the side of the individuals who are doing the business email compromise and the ransomware, et cetera, is if it's not broken, don't fix it and it still works <laughs> right so and it's a low cost yeah. if you think about it for a lot of these um enterprising uh groups that are trying to uh you know get access to your system and you know we tell everyone all the time you, you can put a ton of controls in place you get one happy clicker and it's just really hard so you know the people continue to be our front line um and i could not agree more with you on, on sort of you know it's it's in some ways boring and same as usual but how it's done the, the technology around it how we think about technology i think is how it's going to change and evolve
0: oh so so much you know the the idea too that there's that kind of man machine balance that's got to go on the human element needs to return to a bit of it um you know there were a lot of fancy names with lots of x's and predatory animals and products coming out for a while and they would all promise machine learning and ai and algorithmic uh, defenses so your team can you know combat alert fatigue and uh, so basically the computers will protect you the very computers that you know, very sophisticated hackers are spending a lot of time getting into. Um, and in fact, I think where it's gone and certainly where it's gone with incident response is, yes, these tools need to be sophisticated and good and to the extent that tools like machine learning can help us see attack patterns, great. But I think you'll see a lot more outsourcing to good old fashioned human security operation centers. But, you know, for example, crawl, keeps a 24-7 security operation center during an incident response. Uh, That's what we do because the threat actors may not be using any tools that are going to be picked up otherwise. It may just be simply, it's three in the morning. We know this is a manufacturing plant where we know the IT group is asleep and we see somebody using PowerShell, a commonly used administrative tool. Well, we can shut it down because we're watching 24-7. Uh, likewise, we have some tools deployed around email environments now that allow us to intervene 24-7, um, You know, where you're not reading every email, but you're looking for some of those indicators that um, you know, we commonly call indicators of compromise or TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedure that we've come to know well. Which, so as long as they keep saying it ain't broke, don't fix it, we can really defend against that. (laughs) I like that.
2: (laughs) Well, this has been fantastic. So much to dive into. I mean, we could talk about these topics for hours, but really appreciate Jordan, you joining us and bringing us uh, Chris as a special guest. I have one final question for both of you. Um, I always like to ask this, partially, it's to build up my own summer book list of reading. But is what is the most recent book you have read on cyber privacy law technology that you would recommend to the audience?
1: I um I, I just reread uh, Ghost in the Wires, which is uh, Kevin Mitnick's biography, and you know for the technically inclined, it's it's really fascinating. Um, and I think as as you and Chris alluded to, you know, especially with with things like insider threat, I mean, the breakdown is almost always human, not technological. And I think if you want to really understand social engineering and soft vulnerability, it's a, it's a great book.
2: Awesome. I'll add it to the list. Chris, any books you could recommend um, from your perspective?
0: Yeah. You know, I really enjoyed sandworm uh, recently and I can't, I can't recommend that enough. However, the one I've read most recently is this is how they tell me the world ends by Nicole Perroff. And it's, um, you know, I'd recommend uh, reading the book. I find I think the audio book is a little bit uh, tough. It's a tougher listen, but, the, um, you know, again, talking about a lot of what we're talking about now. You know, what, what does a cyber attack really look like? Um, and if you can imagine extrapolating some of those details, you really understand, um, you know, a lot of the world that we live in now. So fun read. Absolutely.
2: That was a great book, Chris. And Nicole Perloth is also a great speaker. And I know she has a lot of speaking engagements. She did one for a group of mine um, out in LA, Secure the Village. And she was just fantastic to listen to. So I totally echo that, that recommendation. But well, thank you both for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Such interesting conversation. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks, Jordan. Thank you for having us.